We do have victory in Jesus. Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. John, in the opening of his gospel, he says, the light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, we have a king who rules over all, um, and in him we have the victory. And so that's just a sweet truth. So thank you, uh, Pat, for leading us uh, this evening, and thank you all for joining us tonight as we contemplate the idea of what is worship. What is worship? So let, me, let us pray together one more time uh, as we get started tonight. Lord, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters in Christ here tonight. I pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would be at work in each and every one of their lives. I pray, O oh Lord, that whatever they have going on tonight, I pray that you would just grant clarity and light and life and truth and wisdom and faith and trust in your good and kind and true promises, O oh Lord. I pray that you would just grant them to trust in you, look to you, and, oh, God, that you would hold them fast in anything and everything that they have going on. I just pray, oh, Lord, that you would bless us tonight, that you would strengthen us in Christ Jesus, that you would lift up our eyes to heaven, that you would pull back the curtain that we may behold you in your unveiled glory, that you might wean us from this world, oh, Lord, to view things in light of eternity. And I pray, O oh Lord, tonight you would just begin to teach us, Lord, what it means to worship. We were made for this. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us rejoice in being who you have made us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we, um, we're not going to get there immediately, but we're going to get there eventually, so save you some time and go ahead and turn there now. now. As you do, I want you to think about what does it mean to worship? So if I asked you what is worship, what do you think you would say? What is worship? On one hand, it seems like a very simple question. It's like, surely we know what this means. But on the other hand, when you get to thinking about it, man, what is worship? It's actually kind of hard to define. It's like we kind of have an idea, a sense of what it is or what it might be. But when we try to put it into words, it's actually a lot more complicated than we think. But if we think about, if we think about it, we really need to figure this out. Because if there is a being and there is who by his very nature and essence demands a response of worship from us, then it may be that the single most important thing we do with our life is to learn what it means to worship. To worship him. Because to get this wrong could mean wasting our entire lives on that which is not worship. And the Bible says in the end, face eternal death. Tonight, we're going to look at To try to answer this question, what is worship, we're going to try to look at 
at two words that are used in the Bible that refer to this concept of worship, and they're sometimes, sometimes translated as worship. And I think le- looking at these and how the Bible uses them will give us a sense of what it means to worship God. And the first word uh, is the word proskuneo. And what we see here is that it means that worship is reverence and submission. So this is number one. Worship is reverence and submission. This word, so it's a Greek word, and many, we know that the, the, many of the apostles and lots of people in, in Jesus' day who were Jews, they read, you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew mostly, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And many of them, because they spoke Greek, when they read the Old Testament, rather than read, read the Hebrew, they would read the Septuagint. And this, this word, this Greek word, proskuneo, that is used, uh, that is meant worship, it translates, uh, in the Greek Old Testament, it translates a Hebrew term that means to bow at the waist. So the word originally meant, uh, it actually meant an actual physical action. To, to, to bow at the waist. It, it, it rep- when you use the word, it originally meant it referred to an actual, actual physical gesture that you performed with your body. For example, in Genesis 18, uh, uh, verse 2, it says that uh, you remember when Abraham or, or when God visited Abraham and God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, they are, and God is with a couple of other angels. And they actually approach Abraham. And it says that when God approached Abraham, it says that Abraham bowed himself to the earth. That's this word that we're talking about for worship. He bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. So think about what this gesture means. When you are bowing to someone, if I bow to someone, I at the very least am showing that person a type of honor, a type of respect, a type of fear, if you will, a type of reverence. And that's at the bare minimum. But of course, this gesture can also mean a lot more than that. You can imagine in many places in the Bible, for example, it talks about people falling to their faces before the Lord. So it clearly respects then, it it clearly um, relates then more than just, um, just respect and honor. But it can mean so much more than that. It can mean just utter awe and fear and wonder at, uh, at who we're in the presence of. When Moses uh, interceded for Israel after they had made the golden calf in the wilderness, he pled that the Lord might not destroy them because the Lord was about to. But the Lord relents. And then Moses makes this incredible request. If you remember this story, to me it's one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. God, Moses is with God on the mountain, and Moses asks God, he says, God, please show me your glory. What a prayer. He says, God, please show me your glory. And if you remember how the story plays out, God basically tells Moses, you can't see my glory and live. I'm too holy. I'm too great. 
But God does grant him this. God says, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by you. And Moses got to see, if you will, the backside of God's glory. And if you remember, when he came down from the mountain, his face was glowing so brightly that the people didn't want to look at him. He asked God to show him his glory. And when God passed by him as he was hid in the cleft of the rock, God proclaimed something to Moses. And this is what he says in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's his name, that's his covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He worshipped. Moses literally bowed down at the glory, at, at what? What did Moses bow down before? At the revelation of God. In other words, Moses saw God and his response was worship. And so I want to suggest tonight that at least one way that we could define worship is, is worship is what happens when you really see God as he is. Worship is what happens when you really see God for who he is. And so I would suggest to you that worship in this sense is not optional. If you have a true vision of God, you, you can't help but worship. When, when men, sinful men, uh, were visited just by angels in the Bible, they could not control themselves. They fell down as though dead. So I'm saying that when you actually experience God in truth for yourself, in your heart, you can't help but worship because God's presence demands it. It demands worship. And so worship then is not merely hearing about God. It's not even merely knowing about God. You, there are lots of biblical scholars today in the most prestigious universities all over the United States and all over the world who have devoted themselves to studying the Bible that talks about a God that they don't believe. You can know a lot about God and never worship. But when we see God fully and truly as he is, when we actually behold him, not just as some kind of concept in our mind, but actually as a personal being who relates to us as his people, you can, you must, you will worship. And that's why you understand the, the Israelites, even though they had all this religious activity, God said they weren't truly worshiping him. Why? Because seeing they did not see. Hearing they did not hear. Lest they should see with their eyes and, and understand with their hearts and turn and believe. And I would heal them. So it, is, so it is possible then to attend church every Sunday, hear good sermons, sing good songs, and never worship. But when you truly see God for as he is, 
is, you will worship. And this is what happened to Moses. And so it's easy to see then how this word, which literally means bowing down, came to take on the more general meaning of worship. Of bowing, not necessarily just physically, but the bowing of your heart towards another in reverence and awe and gratitude and submission. So this is what this word uh, means in the Old Testament. And, and it's the same word, the same word for worship that the Apostle John puts on Jesus' lips when Jesus is uh, having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. You remember the story, and I asked you to turn to John 4 a little bit earlier. Jesus is going through Samaria, and they stop at a well for rest, and his disciples go into town. So it's just him at this well, and this Samaritan woman comes up, and he begins talking to her. And she is astounded that a, a man, not just a man, but a Jewish man, would talk to her a woman. Not just a woman, a Samaritan woman. And you remember the story, they begin to have this conversation about water. Jesus asked her for a drink, and she's like, are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus said, well, yes, but if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And I'd give you living water, and he who drinks this water will never thirst again. But, of course, the Samaritan woman, she can't see. It goes right over her head. She says, how can you get this water? The well's deep. you got nothing to draw with. And, of course, Jesus is talking about a water totally different. And then, in this story, this is what Jesus says, and it picks up in John chapter 4, verse 16, so you can look there with me. This is what he says. Jesus said to her, he says, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit. And truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So there's five things that I think we can learn from this passage concerning worship. The first one is this is that. True worship is for anyone who sees Christ for who he is. True worship is for anyone who sees Christ for who he is. Jesus came to this Samaritan woman and he broke all kinds of social norms, just even talking to her. But Jesus did much more than talk to her. (laughs) He shared the gospel with her. 
He gave her gospel hope. He said that you have a thirst, you have a hankering in your heart that you're trying to fill with men. And I can give you water that will satisfy your soul forever. And Jesus touches a nerve. It, t- she t- it touches a nerve. She knows what he's doing. Kind of. It touches a nerve, so what does she do? She changes the subject. Jews say, we, we worship on this mountain, but Jews say we should worship on that one. But don't, don't miss what Jesus has done here. Jesus is talking to Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan, not just a woman, but a woman with a promiscuous past. And Jesus said, worship is for you. In other words, true worship is for anyone who sees, who can see Christ for who he is, regardless of your past. And so again, this is, it's, it's so important to understand. Many people feel like they have to clean themselves up to come to God. They have to clean themselves up to come to church. They have to put on their best face at church because God forbid someone at church know that other people at church have problems. But Jesus is total opposite. He runs to this woman who has had five divorces and is living with a man who's not his husband, her, her husband, and he says, worship is for you. If, you. if you can see me for who I am, that I am the Christ, the Son of God. So worship is for everyone, regardless of their past, if we can see Christ for who he is. Number two Worship is not confined to a particular place. Worship, we see, is not confined to a particular place. He says this in in verse 21 there. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This was, uh, this was, you know, the religious controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans were uh, more or less, they were half-breed Jews uh, that had... um, intermarried, uh, contrary to the Jewish law, uh, after, after the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by Assyria in 722 B.C. And they, they, they resettled the, the region of Samaria and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. But the Jews worshipped at Jerusalem. And this woman brings up this, uh, this uh, controversy uh, I think to kind of change the subject, to kind of to kind of uh, take the focus off of her and her life, and and um and 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 focus it on something else. But Jesus says, "Fine, I'll I'll take your change of subject because I'm still going to tell you what I want to tell you." And he says, "Worship is from the Jews. At this present time, you are supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but." The hour is coming and is now, is now here where we'll worship neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You remember a couple chapters earlier in John chapter 2? Jesus told the people in the city of Jerusalem, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What was Jesus talking about? His body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What is Jesus saying? 
Jesus is saying that <laughs> I am changing the way worship works. We used to worship on this mountain. People used to worship on this mountain, but my body is the temple. In other words, worship with God soon is not going to take place on a mountaintop. It's going to take place through me. It's going to take place through me. In other words, worship is not confined to a specific place or to a specific setting. Church buildings are good. I thank God for church buildings. I thank God we have a church building. But for hundreds of years, the churches in the, the, the Christian church had no buildings. They worshiped in homes, in people's houses, who would open up their homes to the believers in that city so that they could worship together. And so Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It is it is not in a specific geographical location that we meet God. It is in Jesus Christ that we meet God. And so we can, so it's very possible to gather to a building and no worship happens. If Jesus doesn't show up in the building, no worship is happening. <laughs> but no matter where we are in a building or in your workplace or in your house or, or wherever, wherever. People are gathered and Jesus is present there. Their worship is happening anywhere Jesus Christ is loved, cherished, adored, exalted. Worship is happening. So Jesus comes and relocates the place of worship in himself and in our hearts. So true worship is not confined to a particular place. Number three, true worship comes only through Christ. True worship comes only in Christ. That's in, this is verse 22. Jesus told her, he said, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Um, Jesus was kind of politically incorrect here. Some people read that and say, my goodness, Jesus, that's, you know, that's a little narrow, isn't it? A little, little intolerant. You're telling me the Jews... Are the only one that's right the only ones that's right about this? Yeah. Yes, he is. But Jesus understood at the same time that through him, think about it. When in Acts 1:8, when Jesus said, The whole you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, yes, salvation is from the Jews, but it's not going to stay in the Jews. It's going to go out to all the earth. And it begins in Jesus' ministry with the Samaritan woman. To my knowledge, there wouldn't be any other Jewish religious leader of Jesus' day that would go and say that the Samaritans... <laughs> can be saved and yet here Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman but nevertheless Jesus is clear when he says that salvation is from the Jews that is salvation is only through him because Jesus Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures he is the promised one he is the as we talked about in Galatians he is the promised offspring of Abraham he is he is uh the true Israel. 
He is the one to whom all the promises of God were made. It is in him that all the promises of God are fulfilled. And it is through him that all by faith become children of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that means that any other worship, and of course, you know, lots of people don't like this, but... Really, it's not, it's, it's just a matter of reality. People say, Jesus makes clear that worship of the true God only happens through him. Any other worship, no matter how fervent and no matter how sincere, is not true worship unless it flows from faith in Christ. And this is just because of the nature of reality. And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but it's just the way it is because your faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. If I sit down in, oh, our chairs are gone. If I sit down in a chair, if I sit down in that chair, it doesn't matter how much I believe that chair will hold me up. If it's broken and I sit in it, it's going to fall apart and I'm going to hit the ground. In other words, I may have had full faith and utter sincerity. I might have been so sure that chair was going to hold me that I just jumped up and plopped down on it. But guess what? It doesn't matter how strong your faith is if the object is broken. And so just the nature of reality is it doesn't matter how sincere your faith is in worshiping something else. If what you're worshiping is not real, it cannot save you. And so it's actually unloving to let people go on in their ignorance, worshiping that which cannot save. And Jesus comes and he says, look, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we see that true worship then comes only in Christ. Number four, true worship comes by the Spirit. True worship comes by the Spirit. Verse 23 and 24, Paul says, or Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. True worship comes by the Spirit. It comes... By the Spirit. We must worship in spirit, Jesus says, and in truth. The NIV, if you have an NIV, it actually translates it spirit, capital S. I actually think that's a good translation because I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think that Jesus is saying that spirit, that worship in spirit and truth must be worshiped through the Holy Spirit. And I think that's actually pretty clear in context because the, the initial conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is about living water, which is a clear reference to the Spirit. And then right before that, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And what does John, uh, Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3, 5, and 6? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That is, that true worship must come by the Holy Spirit that's dwelling inside of our hearts. The Holy Spirit that has granted us new birth, 
Paul, Jesus says that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. That is, everybody's born once, but not everybody's born twice. Everybody lives in the, everyone lives in the flesh, but not everyone lives in the spirit. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept And we might just say the fleshly person or the person that is merely of the flesh. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, we need the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking to this woman, saying living water, and she has no idea what he's talking about. She's clueless. But that, does, but that changes. Because Jesus, later on, she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all things. And he says, woman, I who speak to you am he. Actually, he is not in the Greek. It just says, I who speak to you am. I am. And I believe at that moment, the Spirit comes upon this lady. And she runs into town and she says, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. She's changed. She gets it by the power of the Spirit of God. So true worship only comes by the Spirit. And number five, true worship must be rooted in truth. Again, he says, the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. I would say the Holy Spirit and truth. And this is key here, too. The vast majority, by the way, of the people in the world believe in God. If we just took a poll, uh, if we just took a poll of all humanity, it would, it, 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 I mean, it wouldn't even be close in terms of people who believe in God versus people who don't. The world is vastly religious, vastly theistic in belief in God. But I say God with a little g because actually a very significantly much smaller amount of this people of the people who believe in God actually believe in the one true God. And I would say, God help us, many people who uh, fill the church buildings that have crosses on the top. They believe in God, but they believe in God, little g. In other words, they, believe in, they don't believe in a God who made them in his image. They believe in a God who they made in their image. In other words, they believe in a God who just happens somehow that the God of the universe just agrees with everything they already believe. If your God never contradicts you, you may be worshiping yourself. Why, how can we presume that God is always going to fit our nice, neat expectations of what he should be like? Trust me, if you read this Bible and you understand what it's saying, it's going to make you uncomfortable. If, you're not, if you've never been uncomfortable reading the Bible, you're not reading it right. God does some crazy things. God's not like us. God is 
different. He is transcendent. He is Lord over all. And think about it. It's not, it's not, you you don't even, it's just simple logic. If there is a God who made and created all things, who is the ruler of time and space and everything, then by definition, he is who he is, whether you want him to be or not. There's just no way around it. If God is who he is, you can't change him. And it's so strange to me that so many people today think, well, if God's like that, I can't believe in him. What? It doesn't matter whether you want to believe in him or not. He's still there. And choosing not to believe in him doesn't make him disappear any more than jumping out that window makes the law of gravity disappear. It's still going to be there whether you want it to be or not. The question is, are you going to submit to him? Are you going to be willing to respond to the revelation that he is giving us? And the Bible says that everybody knows God. Everybody knows there is a God. But they suppress that knowledge because of sin. But nevertheless... Jesus says, and Jesus says here, true worship must be rooted in truth. We must worship God for who he is. That's the only way. What if I went up to my wife and I said, I love you so much. I love you for all that I wish you could be. (laughs) Don't do that. It doesn't make sense. But what if we go to God and say, God, I love you so much when you're exactly as I want you to be. That's foolishness. It's blasphemy. We must worship God as He is. And I'm telling you, the more you see as He, the more you see Him as He is, the more you see, my goodness. It's both terrifying and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Utterly unlike anything in this world. True worship, Jesus says, must be rooted in truth. And so we see from this first word for worship that worship is reverence and submission. It is a willingness by the power of the Holy Spirit to yield ourselves to all that God is. Not all that we wish him to be, but all that he is. It is the bowing of one's heart, not just of one's body, to say, Lord, have your way in me. Reverence, worship is reverence and submission. And the second word, and the second thing that we'll see tonight is that worship is service. Worship is service. The Greek, another Greek word used that sometimes translated worship is the word latruo. And it means service. It means to serve. In the Greek Old Testament, this word was used to refer to service rendered to God or to God's little g, in ritual practices or the offering of sacrifices. Um, when, when God is telling, when Moses is telling Israel how they are to worship God in Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is what Moses tells them. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandment, to keep the commandments and statute of, statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So service, so 
Uh, Moses here understands that, look what he says, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, Moses understands that our service to the Lord is basically, uh, and in this, in this case, our worship through service is, is basically just the, engage, the engagement of God and the service to him that is flowing from a heart of love and thankfulness and faith and gratitude for him, for who he is and for what he has done. done. It is service to God expressed in obedience to God's commands. Fueled by faith and love. And so in other words, when he says serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, it's clear then that the type of worship and the type of service that God requires is not just rote external obedience like we talk about so often. It's not just going to church or it's not just in other religions, you know, bowing down and repeating so many prayers and offering incense and smokes and clouds and all that stuff. It's not... That's not, it says, serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. That is the type of worship God is seeking is faith-filled obedience to him. Flowing from a heart that trusts and loves God. And so worship then is not merely just a posture of reverence and submission, but it's also service. It's obedience. It's trust in his commandments that, that, that flows, that expresses itself in obedience. And what's interesting here is that in the Old Testament, this word is actually specifically used almost in a, te- in a technical sense for the service that the Levites and priests would do for the tabernacle. So when it says that they, the Levites and the priests served the God in the tabernacle in their, in their duties... It uses this word. And if you think about it, think about what this means for our service to God. The priests had the highest requirements of all the Jews, obviously. In fact, their, their cleanliness laws demanded that a person who was, who was the priest, or it might have been just a high priest, I can't remember. But even if one of their immediate family members died... They could, not, they could not go near the body. In other words, they, there, were, there were such strict regulations upon the priest to maintain cleanliness and holiness and purity in their lives that, that, it, that uh, God's commands and their duties encompassed the entirety of their lives. Everything that they did came under the scrutiny, the command of God. And what does this mean for our service to God? It means that our worship to God through service is a comprehensive call from God to serve Him in every area of life, in everything that we do. We are to serve God. That is that worship as service is not just something you do on Sundays. It's something that you do each and every day in anything and everything that you do when you, from when you wake up in the morning, from when you go to bed at night. You are serving God. Uh, and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he, uh, Paul uses this word. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says that when we offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, this is our spiritual worship. Now, when Paul says spiritual worship, it's, it's a really difficult word to translate. Some translations may say rational worship. It's hard to kind of, it's kind of hard to explain what it means. But when, when he says spiritual worship, this, this is what he's trying to say. There are kind of two, you had the Jewish approach to worship and then you had the Greek approach to worship. The Jewish worshiped under the strict tutelage of the Mosaic law. In other words, you know, they had all the rites and rituals. They would offer the sacrifices at the appointed times. They did this, they had to go offer an animal sacrifice. That you did this, you have to do this. It was all kind of rote ritual. And as, but as we just talked about, Christ came and he's revealed that true worship is not in Jerusalem, ultimately, but it's through him. What does that mean? That means in him, animal sacrifice would cease. Because you don't worship in Jerusalem anymore, which was the only lawful place for animal sacrifice. And so Jesus understood that he was changing the way the Jews worshipped. That is that God, God doesn't want your animals. God wants you. He wants your heart. And by the way, the Old Testament even anticipated this. If you read your Old Testament carefully, it's clear that, that the Old Testament anticipated that this change was going to happen. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul disobeyed God by not killing all the animals like he was supposed to, he told Samuel, Samuel, he said, well, I didn't kill him because I was going to sacrifice him to the Lord. I disobeyed God because I was going to offer him to God as a sacrifice. And this is what Saul says to Paul. This is what Samuel says to Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. God wasn't, the whole time, God wasn't interested in their animals. He wanted them. And so Jesus, and so uh, spiritual worship, when Paul says this is your spiritual worship, what he's saying is that worship is not just these physical realities. It's a spiritual reality. It's a, it's a rational reality. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's what's going on in your heart, not just what you're doing physically. Paul, God doesn't want your animals. He wants spiritual worship, worship from the heart. But the Greeks also had a, an idea of worship too. That is, some Greeks at that time actually already rejected animal sacrifice. Not all of them, but some of them did. Some of them actually already rejected animal sacrifice as, as irrational, as not, you know, it's not true worship. You know, uh, God, they, they had this high sense of the spirit, uh, of spiritual reality, but they neglected the physical reality. 
But they already rejected animal sacrifices in terms of worship of like taking vows of silence and asceticism, which means like, you know, fasting and, um, you know, uh, being hard on your body like, like monks have done in the past. Mysticism, things like that. But Paul combats this idea too. Because the spiritual worship of just silence for the sake of silence or mystical focusing on icons or uh, chanting things over and over or fasting just for the sake of fasting, Paul says that's not spiritual worship either. Let me tell you what spiritual worship is. Offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, what is the worship that God desires? It's not rote ritual and some kind of building, offering sacrifices or just, you know, just attending church for the sake of church. Nor is it some kind of spiritual mysticism uh, where you just uh, fast for the sake of fasting and then you just take a vow of silence or go to a monastery. Over and against all these things, Paul says that true worship is giving your life to God. You want to worship God? Here's how you do it. You go love other people. You go pray for people who are hurting and sick. You go visit those who are in prison. You go visit the lonely. You go give to the cause of Christ. Give to missions. Give to provide the needs of those who don't have any. Pray to God with a whole and pure heart, knowing that he answers those who call on him. Read the Bible. Read it in your home. Study it with your heart and mind so that it changes you from the inside out. So that it makes you more, uh, that the fruit of the Spirit, as we talked about in this morning, uh, uh, overflow in your life in the way that you treat other people. You want to worship God? Here's how you worship God. Give yourself to Him. Live in obedience to His commands. Reflect His character in the world by loving as He loves, serving as He serves, providing for those as He provides for us. That's how we worship God. So what is worship? Worship is reverence and submission. One commentator said this. Worship is bowing all that we are before all that he is. Another way you can think about it is this. Worship is like giving God a blank check. It's like giving God a blank check and saying, Lord, however you want to cash this, Wherever you want to cash this, however you want to spend my life, I'll do it. That's worship. It's the total surrender of yourself to God's will in his life, to the pursuit of God's glory in our lives. It's the bowing of all that we are before all that he is. Worship is worship in spirit and in truth. It is offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? It means everything is worship. If you are doing it for the glory of God, it's worship. If you can't do it for the glory of God... It's sin. But this changes everything. We worship God at work. We worship God 
when we eat, bless the Lord. We worship God when we're with our families. We worship God uh, when we're uh, ministering to our neighbors or, or, or anything and everything. When we give our lives to overseas missions or to the call to ministry or to, or to uh, anything and everything God calls us to do, everything is worship. And we worship, and our worship is through Jesus Christ. And this is, this is the key. Jesus Christ is the epitome of worship because he gave all that he was and laid it down before all that God the Father He literally, in the, most, in the most literal sense, laid down his body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so the only rational thing, the only spiritual way that we too can worship is to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. It's not clear to me, I don't know, if God will ask anyone in this room to actually lay down your physical life for God, but he may. But much more likely, our sacrifices to God will be waking up every day and serving him. Serving him in the way we do our work, in the way we relate to other people, in the way we speak to other people, in the way we uh, talk to our families and care for our families. We offer all that we are before all that he is.